I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Christy is a proprietor of Frankly Wines in Tribeca. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing down there? Well, Frankly Wines is my wine shop. My last name is Frank, so that's the uh, that's the tie in there. And uh, we're located down in, I guess, the southern part of Tribeca. It's sort of the intersection of Tribeca, City Hall, the Financial District, and Battery Park City. And um, been open for about five years, and it's very much a very much a local neighborhood shop. It's a pretty small physical space. Um, yeah. <laughs> how do you think that that shapes the outlook of the store? Well, the intent was always to have a shop that would be able to just sort of survive on foot traffic alone. Mm-hmm. And I wanted, I always wanted it to be very, very, very focused, very edited. I hate the word curated, but I guess very curated. So you walk into some shops and you'll see, you know, a row of California Chardonnays and they're all kind of the same. And it was like, you really only need one and it needs to be the best and you need one at about under 15 and one at around $20. So the intent was always to have a space that was just very edited with sort of all the main categories that anybody coming into a shop would look for, but just sort of one and the best that I had found to date. But it is a neighborhood shop and you're not doing a lot with like email blasts or guys on the phone. There's no no guys on the phone. There's there's one phone in the shop and it would be sort of annoying for the customers. <laughs> it's it's 320 square feet of space unless I put people in, in the basement, which I don't think that would be smiled upon by the DOB. Um, but it's, it's, we do have a growing email customer base and we do do some shipping for certain things, but for the most part, it is very much a local store, foot traffic, local deliveries, that sort of thing. And one of the things I found kind of interesting about your journey to getting there was that you used to work with a lot of wine shops around the country because uh, mm-hmm. you work for a distributor and, and uh, importer. Mm-hmm. And you went around and talked to all these people. And what were the, some of the lessons you learned while you were in that role? Well, I my, my background was uh, kind of come from a corporate background. So I was working for, um, for Moet Hennessy for about the, the seven years after I graduated from business school before I started the store. And I was working on uh, Hennessy Cognac 
Malbec, 10 Cane Rum, and then the last three or so years that I was there, I was on the wines team. And it was basically a national brand manager position. So we were interacting a lot with the wineries that we were working with, doing a lot of PowerPoint, um, making a lot of Excel spreadsheets. But where it was really interesting was we were doing a lot of road work. We would go to the regions. We would work with the sales rep. I was that really annoying supplier person. And... um, visit stores and bars across the country. So I really got a sense of what the wine world is like beyond just the New York market. I mean, New York City is a pretty rarefied wine market, Mm -hmm. but seeing how people think about pricing, how they're stocking, how they're interacting with customers. You know, you'd walk into some shop and and you would just say, this is is far too big. Why do they need all this? And there's nobody on the floor to sell this sort of stuff. Um, Some stores were completely concerned with price. Some stores had a really cool selection. um, along with sort of other things. So it was just a, a really good education in seeing how people set things up, how they thought about it, and, you know, realizing that that it's it's a really big wine world and having coming at it from, like, a customer orientation as opposed to just what do I want to do. Oh, I see. So what were your thoughts when you were designing a store? I mean, what were you thinking about? Besides the neighborhood, what was important? I wanted it to be a place that was sort of very interactive where people would come in and feel very comfortable asking for recommendations. Um, the shop itself... The, the area that we're in, Tribeca, used to be the, the butter and eggs district. So there was a marketplace, um, a lot of butcher shops, a lot of like places where you could buy eggs and so on and so forth. So the shop is kind of, it's a very, very sort of vague reference, but it's set up kind of like a butcher, butcher shop or a oh, I didn't, pharmacy. I didn't notice that, and but that's if true. you, you walk in and you walk in, it's 320 square feet. It's very small. The bottles are sort of aligned, um, on the sides and there's a center display and there's a lot of circular, uh, circular flow so that the strollers can but, make yeah, that's their right. way. Oh, yeah, it's a concern <laughs> in the neighborhood. But right? it's um, it's a big, long counter area. And when people walk in, the first thing that they see is the person behind the counter. And it's very intuitive and it's very natural for them to walk up and say, I'm having this for dinner. What do you recommend? And they do it They do it without thinking. Um, and that, that was sort of the intent of having a shop where people would just naturally come up to you and ask for recommendations. I think that's really smart because that's exactly the experience I find when mm-hmm. I go there is you can't not interact with the person because yeah. you're in the 20-foot <laughs> zone where you have to start talking to them or at least acknowledge that they're yeah. there. You know yeah. what I mean? We're, we're pretty much unavoidable. And we do, everybody that walks into the store, we're like, hey, let me know if you have any questions. And some people will walk right up and some people will walk around, but it's really easy, even when it's very busy, to kind of see who's still looking, who needs some help, and they, they just they interact with us very naturally. It's kind of fun. So one of the other things I saw that was really cool at the store um, and kind of brings back to that idea of interaction between the staff and the customer was you had these mystery uh, bags that had a wine that uh, was blind to the consumer. They didn't know what they were buying. They only knew how much they were buying it for. Yeah. And you said kind of trust us, grab one of these bags, and you might learn something new, and we promise we're giving you good value for what you're paying for, which I believe is $20. How, how does that work? They're actually, it's um, it's $20 including tax. So you're paying oh, okay. eighteen thirty seven is what you're actually paying for the wine. And, you know, wine stores are always 
you're always faced with your with your bin ends that you have like your last one or two bottles and what are you going to do with it and since our bin ends tends tend to be some of the quirkier things that we're always hand selling once they would wind up in that box up front nobody would pick them up and be like oh look this interesting mondoos i think i'll take that so even if we put little tags on them if we weren't selling them they were just sitting there and sitting there and sitting there Got it. so we thought well what's kind of a fun way to move these in a way that kind of engages the customer. And we thought, let's stick them in a bag. Let's price them all at an even 20. Yeah. Give us a $20, including tax. We'll give you a bag of wine. And in each one of them, there's like a little code on the back so we can track the inventory. There's a little tasting note inside of it. And we started off not letting, not even knowing, not not letting people know if it was white or red, oh, okay. but they really wanted to wanted know to that. Know. So we started to at least say, this is red, this is white, this is pink, this is sparkling. And if people are sort of indecisive, they're going to a dinner party, they don't really know what they're having, they don't know what the guest likes, but they want to spend around 20 bucks, we're like, just take one of those. And people really love them. And something else I saw that I guess... I don't often think about your stores being someone that sells uh, liquor, but you do, and it's a good selection. Um, do you get a lot of people coming in looking for distilled spirits? <laughs> we get a lot of people who are, they'll come, they'll stand right in that section facing the bottles of vodka saying, do you have any liquor? <laughs> like, Quit talking about yeah, me. Yeah. It's like, it, it's right there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, um, but it's more than just vodka, because I noticed you guys had like yeah. some really interesting out-of-the-way things. Yeah, was... and again, it's, um, it's a very, very edited selection, because I, we only got the license about uh, a year ago. Oh, like, okay. For the liquor license. So we, maybe that's why people don't think of you. They for... don't think of us that way, and they also, they come in and they, it's, it's kind of in the corner, it's not behind the counter where it usually is, so people don't naturally see it. They're not seeing the big brands that they normally normally would see. Um, and again, they're, you know, they're kind of walking in and they're focusing on us and they, they see wine out of the corner of their eye, not the liquor. Um, but we put a lot of thought into what are the kind of prices that people want to pay for a vodka. So we've got sort of a very a very well thought out ladder of vodka pricing. We've got a couple blended scotches at certain price points that people want, um, Campari, a couple gins, and then we kind of fill in the rest with sort of quirky things that we are excited about selling because when you're talking about, um, you know, corn whiskey, 20-year-old aged corn whiskey that costs $60, no one's coming in and asking for that. So it's the, it's, that's where we get to have a little bit of fun and everything else just sort of pays the bills. Got it. No, I think when a lot of people would hear you say, well, I worked on the more corporate side of the wine business, they would think that you would have more corporate style selections. But I noticed that you really didn't. Um, it seemed a little bit, you know, as hip as anybody's store, I guess I would, is the way I would put it, at least in Manhattan. Um, how did you develop that viewpoint? How did your palate evolve to the point where you said, these are wines I believe in? Because I, I don't necessarily see it in the bio. How did it come about? I um, Well, I actually got into... I got into the wine, not into the wine industry, just into wine when I was in college. Um, and I always, I always think back to how I started learning about wine. And it was in the, the Cornell Hotel School. I didn't go to the hotel school. I wish I had gone to the hotel school looking back. But at the time, there was a, a wine tasting class you could take. And it was a 500 person class. And they started, 
out, you, you went very quickly through this progression of wine. You started locally, which was New York Finger Lakes, so Rieslings with a little bit of sweetness to it. Um, then you went to Beaujolais, France, juicy red wines. And you just kind of went through everything very quickly. And at the end, you were drinking, um, you, you were sampling Burgundy or you were sampling Bordeaux. So very quickly, you went through this progression that kind of mirrors, I think, how a lot of people learn about wine. Um, I just, I loved it. And I was also one of the oldest of my friends. So when people were thinking about what they were going to do over the weekend, I was the one that they turned to to um, make the purchases and the purchase recommendation. It's a good way to get invited to all the parties. Yeah. <laughs> so I realized that not only did I really love wine, but I really liked talking about it because it was kind of like, well, you know, if you want some wine, you're going to have to listen to me going on about why this is the wine that you're getting. And after school, I wanted to keep learning about it. But, you know, you're kind of like, well, all these classes, they cost a lot of money. How can I learn about wine without paying for it? So I got a part-time job in a wine shop a couple nights a week. And at the time, this was this was probably in the mid in the mid 90s. And it was it was a wine shop that had an a Malbec from Argentina. It had a shelf of um, Chilean wine. It had Pinotage from South Africa. And now, you know, those aren't those aren't terribly exotic things. But back at that time, it was. And I remember the first bottle that they gave to me to take home and write a note about was an Albarino. Again, now, yeah, Albarino. But back then, big deal. And I didn't really realize how kind of cool and exotic this was. And I just kind of very quickly fell into a shop in a situation where wine was about exploring and it wasn't about points and it wasn't about trophies and it wasn't about um, any particular thing. It was just about what what's new and different and what's out there. Um, went to business school and after graduating, worked for Moet Hennessy, worked on their uh, national wine buy. And it really wasn't until that time that I was like, oh, wait a second, wine is why I got into this business because spirits and champagne from a you know, from a, a corporate marketing standpoint very different than wine and um even as the wine group even it was um it was cloudy bay it was terrasis it was casa de la postal and those are those are big brands that you see in grocery stores um and we were calling on grocery stores and and working with the grocery stores but still within that really corporate environment, the wines team was still, we were kind of like in the corner and nobody really paid attention to us. And it was like, oh yeah, wine. That's why, that's why I started doing this. That's why I wanted to work in this company to begin with. Um, a lot of things sort of were changing at, at the corporate level. And I got to the point where I was just kind of like, I've done a lot of this. I, I, I'm not really learning anything anymore. Why don't I open my own shop. Because going into all of these shops and seeing all of these different shop owners, you'd walk into one and you're like, this is what I want to do. If I was going to have a shop, I was going to do that. And I just kind of was getting to the point where I was tired of telling people what they should drink and wanted to be teaching them how to learn what they like to drink. And it all just kind of happened at the same time that I decided to to leave for a number of reasons and look for a place to open the store and left my job and found the space within a week and it all happened very quickly. It's interesting how you talked about telling people what to drink versus empowering them to find out what mm -hmm. they would like. Do you find that that maybe is what drew, drew you to retail rather than the restaurant trade? Well, part of it, um, part of it is probably just my... My <laughs> my orientation is more retail oriented in that I I um I'm kind of a, a homebody and I like to stay up 
late, but doing it in heels is a little difficult. So I, I think you kind of, in some cases, kind of fall into one or the other. And I just fell into, I fell into um, retail. If I'd fallen into restaurants, I probably would have wound up maybe going that way. But retail was just my initial experience. And that's what I wound up loving. And then when it was time to do my own thing, you know, I'm, I'm, at the place where I have two kids. I had the third one six months after I opened the shop. So at that point, retail just becomes more of a lifestyle choice almost. Um, But it was, wine for me was always about telling, not telling people, but helping people understand what it is they like and taking them on their journey. Um, Like for example, I will always have a California Chardonnay and it's going to be a creamy, oaky, buttery California Chardonnay, really well balanced, but still very much in that style. I'm always going to have a Malbec under $15 that's going to be rich and lush and dripping with like new oak because I remember that's what I was enjoying when I was first starting out with wine. And I want to have those things at the shop and I want to be very happy to sell them so that when somebody finally says, okay, what's new, they're going to trust me and they're going to take that next step towards that Malbec from, um, from the Loire Valley. And maybe they'll like it, maybe they won't like it, but they'll, they'll feel comfortable that, hey, wine is something that's enjoyable, that they're not going to be mean to me, and I can explore in a, in a comfortable place. So you think having a rapport with the returning guest or returning customer is really the key? Very much, very much. Mm-hmm. And knowing uh, some people are adventurous straight out of the gate. Some people just, they they eventually they get to a point where they want to try something different, or they, they don't, but I want to be that place that they're comfortable coming to. So when they're ready to take that next step, I'm the one that's helping them take that next step. So one of the things I've seen happen in the time that your store has been open is that in general in New York, there's been a kind of seismic shift in retail where some stores have gotten um, very avant-garde and other stores have pioneered how to um, move uh, wine in different methods, whether it be over the Internet or over phone, uh, delivery, etc. What have been some of the changes from your perspective being in it and how have things changed since five years ago? Um. You know, I was sort of thinking about that as I was as I was coming over here. Five years ago, it, it it seemed like the wine world, and maybe it was just me, and I've mellowed out. But five years ago, it seemed like there were a lot more sort of fractions. There were the you know call them the Parker people or the people who were after the trophy wines and the points, and that's really what they wanted. And then the people who were really hardcore natural wine, where it was less about it seemed to me like it was less about what's in the wine in the bottle and more about um, we're natural wine people. And it was, it, it just felt like there were a lot of people reacting to other people. And it was, it was, I kind of was like, Oh, really? <laughs> but five years later, it just feels like everybody's maybe everybody's kind of mellowed out. Oh, and, and five years ago, it seemed like bloggers were really the thing everybody was talking you're trying about to tell bloggers. Me I'm over. You're looking at me. Uh, and no, you're. Me you're <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. You're a writer. I think you're on right. Actually, and, I think that's true. I think there is less of a bloom on the rose of bloggers. 
Yeah, and and everybody was because I think the the bloggers conference, the first one was maybe four years ago or so. I think the fourth one was this year, and so you know, the a lot of the blogging community was like, well, what are we going to write about? We're going to pick controversies. We're going to bitch about this thing, and we're going to argue about that thing. And I was starting to write a blog at that time. It was about opening the shop, and I was like, am I going to write about this controversy? I'm like, no, I don't care. I gotta I gotta put up a, a shelving unit. Um, and it it seems like either I've just mellowed out or everybody has kind of mellowed out. But now it, it it seems like there's a lot of people are still adventurous. There's still people who are more into natural wine, still people who are more into this kind of wine or that kind of wine. But it doesn't seem like there's a weekly controversy of somebody, you know, this is the issue or that is the issue. Um, and you feel like a lot of that was being raised in the electronic fora. I think so. I think so. Maybe because they didn't have to go through the editorial process. Of, Possibly, of yeah, yeah. Also, I was um, the shop had just opened, and we were still developing a customer base, so I probably had a lot more time to sit around and read it all. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah. So, well, that's what I used to do when I was in retail was yeah. read blogs. I mean, I don't, you know, want my old boss to hear that, but that was it was great. You, you got <laughs> it's, paid it's part to, of the like, educational yeah. experience. Yeah, if I could get paid to read blogs now. If, you know, I can have that shit. <laughs> Yeah, I don't get to read them quite so much anymore. But you are active on Twitter, I should say. A lot of people follow you. Mm -hmm. You have a, an active uh, interaction with a number of, of customers and then uh, just people who are in the wine world. Have you found that to benefit in terms of actual sales or is yes. that more of a pleasurable thing? Yes. No, Twitter, um, it, it's... I, I started Twitter when I first started, when I first opened the store. And that was about the beginning of Twitter. And I really didn't, things like TweetDeck didn't really exist. So it was just this long stream of people literally babbling about nothing. And I did it for a while. And then I just, I found no benefit from it. So I kind of stopped. And then probably about a year and a half to two years ago, it's probably been about that long, I got back into it. And it just seemed like a completely different place. And I I do find that it, draws it it does drive sales very niche sales like it's very much i find wine people whether they're in the industry or whether they're just sort of on the periphery of the industry like friends of the industry are very engaged in wine it's it's not like other um it's not like other product categories like people don't feel the same passion for their toothpaste right. or they don't they're not in a in a position to go out and talk about brushing their teeth they're not brushing their teeth at a bar like they're drinking at a bar so wine and spirits it's you're much more out there and it's easier to be engaged in it and have a conversation with the people who are selling it to you um so it's been it, it's been really great talking to people within the industry, different store owners across the country, seeing what they're doing, getting ideas from them, they're getting ideas from me. And then the customers are, you know, I think they really like it because they see it as sort of insight into this this industry that seems like a lot of fun. And so we kind of play up to that a little bit. And we'll do things like tweet the newsletters about to come up, or we did this, uh, I did this bin and bingo thing once where it's like, this is the, this wine, I've got three bottles left, here's the price, DM me if you want it. And and I mean, boom, it was gone. Really? <laughs> yeah. And um, a lot of people will circle back with emails. Oh, I saw you talking about that or I want that. So it's really, it's, it's been a good source for business. And it's a lot of fun. I find it a lot of fun. Um, so you talked about having a selection of things that everyone could feel comfortable finding. But um, are there things that are drawing you in particular, certain regions or certain grape varieties or certain producers that are really calling your name these days? Um, I have a, I have a personal problem with 
pink, sparkling, slightly sweet wines. Uh-huh. So I've got far too many of those right now. I really like Petillant Natural. I've got three different pink- You mean when you have a problem you like that? Oh yeah. Okay. It's like it's like a sure. it's an addiction. Yeah. <laughs> It's a it's a good problem to have, but my accountant would not agree with me. You have several pets. I have several pets. I have se- I have three pink pets and another pet that I want to rotate in. And it's it's not a store that's big enough to indulge in that sort of behavior. But I do a lot of wines from the Jura. I have a fair amount of them. I I probably have more than I should. I've put myself on a on a monthly budget so that I. It's probably a wise thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm like, Is it oh. specifically a Jura budget? You're like, I can't spend yes, any more on the Jura yes, this month. It is. That's it hilarious. Is. <laughs> when did you have to like go on that diet? I did that last month. Yeah. Because it's just getting a little much. It's getting a little crazy. And part of it part of it is there's no there's no continuity on any of those wines. So right. they come in and my tendency is to to sort of sit on them because I don't wanna I I don't like to bring them in, pick up the phone and push them out to the lucky few people. I like them to sort of sit on the shelf. So somebody comes in and they, they're like, oh, well, I'm going to a barbecue. I'm going to have some simply prepared steak. And I'm like, hey, hey, try this Pulsard. And I don't want it to be this things that sort of fetishized. I just want it to be like, here, have this really cool wine. And they try it and they love it. And they don't know it's like the geekiest, hottest thing going. It's just a bottle that somebody sold them that tastes delicious with their food. But what I found is when you buy these things multiple cases at a time, when they come in off the boat and you put them in the basement, they don't sell, surprisingly. So as more and more producers are out That's there... because you're not letting people into the basement. Pretty so much. You let they, yeah. people into the basement. <laughs> yeah, I can't let people into the basement. <laughs> <laughs> That's where all the Ganavan is, and they would buy it all. Yeah. Actually, the Ganavan never made it to the basement. That we just kept... That we kept on the floor and kept plucking it out as people needed it. Um, but there's, there's a lot more of those wines coming in in different styles and different producers and so i was like well if i want to if i want to buy more i have to sell what i have you know kind of retail 101 so i've given myself a budget so that i know what's coming i'm lying in it, lining it up in advance and i'm actually working to sort of actively sell it a little bit more um a little bit more quickly so that i can buy more so is it important to you not to play the hip card then? Because it kind of sounded like you want to be engaging with people at yes. a level that's not, hey, this is the cool new thing. Yeah, like I'll I'll talk about what the cool new thing is, but it's not it's not coming from a, a place of hipness because I'm I'm not terribly hip. Um, well, and, me neither. Maybe that's why we see eye to eye. Yeah. And and also being in Tribeca, Tribeca's not really a hip place. So I mean, is it a recognition of your audience in a way? In a way it is. I mean, it's not like, we're not like the cool kid store because I'm not a cool kid. I'm not a kid. Um, and knowing who the, the, the it, again, it is a neighborhood store. So you want to play to the neighborhood. Like our, we're not playing opera on the sound system. We're not playing jazz on the sound system, but there's a limit to like, what can you, what can you put on? And, and, you know, there's a limit to what I want to listen to. So, um, we do the, the, the neighborhood vibe is very much in keeping with, uh, with the store. And I live in the neighborhood. I live around the corner from the store. So my whole life basically takes place in 10 blocks. Are there some wines then that are sort of harder to translate into the normal? Like Petnet, for example, is it somewhat harder to make that leap for people if you can't say, hey, this is the crazy thing? It's, it's not really because, um, uh, it like the the rose rosa rosum it's pink and it's a little sweet and it's sparkling and it's delicious and you 
sell it on the basis of it being delicious and sparkling and pink and fun mm -hmm. and not the fact that it's like the hippest, coolest thing going. Um, we've opened like the, uh, the Bernard Tom Mew mm -hmm. and poured it in the shop and people love it. And they, they don't know what they're getting into. I mean, they just know that it's really delicious. So I kind of, I kind of road test things. Mm -hmm. There are wines that are, I know they've got, it's not because they're hip, it's because they're a little weird. And so we'll have to put warning labels on them because like the, um, the Lopez Rosado would be an example of something that would be on the shelf that would be sitting there at around, you know, $25. It's, it was at one point the most expensive rosé that we had. And people would grab it because it was the most expensive rosé. Right. So oh, it must this be must best. be the best. Right. And if we were, if we weren't warning that person what they were getting into, we would get bottles back. You would get bottles And we're back. like, all right. You know, they're like, is it supposed to taste that way? And we're like, right. yeah, it is. We'll drink this. You go take this. And we, we just put a warning label on it that basically said, if you don't know what this wine is, ask us before you buy it. And they'd come up, what is this wine? And you'd use certain words that you know are either going to really entice people or right. turn them off. So, so what they, are some of those words? Um, Twangy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> twangy. So the southern like, audience is huge on the well, see, <laughs> Lopez <it's> Rosé. <laughs> the country twang. music fans. <laughs> no, they like their they like a um they like the uh rose, the rotor elbling rose, which was my version of white Zinfandel. Not that that's specific to specific to the South, that's the tourists. Yeah. Um but like you say things like you'll call it what it is. You'll say, This one's a little it's got a little bit of a pooey note. Or oh, it's a little okay. barnyard. Or this one's got a little bit of a twang, like sort of a sherry kind of thing to it. Um and people will either sometimes when you're talking about red wines, you'll say, This is a little herbal or a little minty or a white wine. This is really floral. It's not sweet, but it's got a floral note to it. And those are words that really set people off. So either they'll say, No, no, I don't want to try that, or they'll be like oh, that sounds kind of cool. But in either case, you've given them a pretty good idea of what they're getting into, and they're not going to be in for a shock when they open it. And I would assume that not only do you not want the bottles back, but you don't want the wine to be not appreciated by exactly. someone who's not having a good time. Exactly. And that's one of the, that's where I think the off-premise is a little bit, it's, it's well, it's, it's different in a lot of ways from the on-premise. But one of the big things is when they open that bottle, you're not there to coach them through some of the, the strangeness about some of these wines. Um, we have the, the, uh, a wine from the Enfer Davier, the, uh, um, Tomain. And it's got a little bit of a prickle to it. And it's absolutely delicious. It's nice the first day, especially at the end of the first day, but it's delicious on the second day. And if you can make it to the third day, it's completely fantastic. But we're not there to sort of tell somebody when you open it and it's prickly, that's okay. So we find ourselves, again, warning labels, talking about those wines, writing about those wines, um, just kind of giving people a real idea of what they're going to be getting into when they open it so that they have the best shot of enjoying it. So let me just ask you, though, because Chamber Street really is right down the street. Mm -hmm. So do you find that, because that's not a, a store that I think of as having uh, warning labels on the bottles, but they have a lot of wines like you might be describing. I think, you know, when I walk in, it seems like there's some wines there that could be a little bit misunderstood. Do you see yourself in a way as the neighborhood alternative? Um, not, not really. I mean, they have, they have, yeah, they have a lot of strange wines in there, but they've got a sales staff that knows what the strange ones are and, and can work their way around. Don't touch that one, or I think you're ready for it, or here's just the thing that you really want. Um, 
when I when I opened the shop, I mean, I obviously knew Chamber Street was right around the corner. I knew where all of the stores were. I knew what they were selling. I knew, um, you know, pretty much at that time, you could sort of go on and see what their inventory was online. But in some cases, I would just go in and I would like bottle count and see what people were selling. The thing about Tribeca, Chamber Street, not the store, but the street, it's it's a very much like a psychological neighborhood boundary. I had people walking into the shop saying, finally, there's a wine store in the neighborhood. I'm like, you don't get out much, do you? But it's... So it's the northern boundary? It's the north. It's sort of the... It's... um. If you get off the subway at Chamber Street on mm-hmm. any of the many stops that are on Chamber Street, chances are you're going to go up or you're going to go down. And if you go down, you may not even realize Chamber Street's there. And if you're going to go up, you don't even have any idea what's below you. I see. It's just it's the joy of New York retail and the fact that people just never walk a block out of their way. Because west is the water and right and east is the courthouse. So there's not uh, yes. a lot of east-west traffic. There's not a, well, there's, there's, you kind of go like Chamber Street is the, it's below Chamber Street. It is Tribeca, but it's kind of not Tribeca. Like, mm-hmm. so it's, it's just, it's, it's one of those boundaries where for whatever reason, the way people travel on feet, they just, they, they go one way or the other. I still get people walking into the shop saying, oh, did you just open? It's like, five years ago so i actually didn't realize that it had been that long either although <laughs> i remember meeting you at a tasting and you you seemed like a charming person and you said hey i'm gonna open up a shop and we talked about it a little bit but i you know it's amazing how fast time time flies, flies. i mean it really is it really is amazing and i mean five years on the new york retail scene is is that's nothing but it also does speak to um how many people are in the neighborhood and how many stores can happily coexist if they're if they're in the right place and know what the foot traffic is so you chose tribeca because you live there yeah (laughs) and do you think that that gives you a little bit of a different relationship to the neighborhood than someone who didn't it it definitely does i mean my kids go to have gone to school in the neighborhood when i'm walking you know I'll, i'll be at the coffee shop around the corner and i'll run into a customer and they'll say hey can i get a case of that thing that I had the other day and I'll be like, yeah, call the store or I'll shoot you an email or, you know, give me your credit card number right here in the coffee shop. So See, I would get confused. I'd be like, you want a, a case of half decaf, decaf skin? <laughs> I, I'm not. Oh, right. Okay. This, is, this is after I've had my coffee. If it's yeah, before yeah. I had my coffee, I'm right. like, who are you? <laughs> what? A wine store? I don't, I don't know who you're talking about. Um, but yeah, I mean, you do... because you're in the neighborhood and because you're seeing customers every time you walk out the street, you, it's an extra incentive. I'm not that you need more incentive, but it's an additional incentive that you want to give people good service and you want to make sure that they're happy with what they're getting and, and that you're kind of, you know, that you're aware that, that you're a neighborhood shop and that you're serving your customers and your neighbors. What are the goals for the next five years or 10 years at the shop? Oh gosh. Um, I'd like to continue to grow the, I want to continue to grow the business beyond the store. The store itself does, it does really well, which I had no, known it would given the location, but to continue to grow the business beyond, um, beyond just the physical storefront. I, one of the things that I, I kind of struggle with is do I want to start to specialize a little bit, or do I want to kind of continue to be a generalist? It's tough to be a generalist. Um, with I a love small it space. With a small space, because you can only start to expand one area 
so much before it starts to take over something that needs to be committed to something else. Um, I, I love my block. I don't necessarily want to move the store, but if there were opportunities to, to get more space, that would always be nice if it fell into my lap. Um, but really, the, the intent was always to sort of stabilize the store with just the foot traffic and then to start to look to ways to explore um, beyond the storefront. But but we're still not saturated in terms of the neighborhood, just until as long as people are still coming in, not knowing we exist, there's a lot more that can be done just within Tribeca City Hall battery park in the financial district so what's a really good day someone comes in you're talking to them for a while what what turns the lights on for you oh i love it when people come in and let us put together a case for them um when they just give us a price point and say whatever you want i like this kind of thing i like this kind of thing i really don't like this and i want to spend about this much i love 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 doing that um love it when people come in and say this is what I'm having for dinner. What should I, what should I be drinking with it? And give me a price point of like, you know, 20 to 25 bucks. Cause you can just rule the world with that. Um, so kind of like helping people knowing that the bottle that I'm recommending is going to go find a good home that night and be something a little different that somebody's really going to enjoy. But it's amazing that you lay out a, a price point of 20 to 25 because I mean, a lot of people maybe would have thrown a few more dollars onto that number. You find that that's a number that really works. You can sell wine for $20 that you really believe in and you're bucks? dedicated to doing it. Absolutely. 19, like 1999, that is the, uh, you know, the New York Times just did an article on it, but 1999, that's like the happy place. I can sell, if someone is some, just the slightest bit adventurous and gives me the slightest bit of an opening, I feel very comfortable selling them really cool things for $20 because I think you can get a lot of diversity, a lot of kind of cool, interesting things. And at least in, in my neighborhood, $20, it's not like no one's going to fall on their sword for, for $20. Once you get above that, you, I start to really, you want to make sure, well, are you really going to like it? Does this sound like it's something good? But 20 bucks, it's like, here, try it. Let me know what you think. And people are really responsive to that. Do you find that working often at that price level that you're often competing with restaurants who are looking for wine by the glass options, like just in terms of stock? <laughs> yes, um, there there are certain there are certain producers, and like La Clarine Farm would be an example. Sure. My, my poor Bowler sales rep, she's got me and she's got Rouge Tomat, so. She's like, well, Pascaline's interested in this, too. And I'm like, just tell the brand manager that it's ridiculous that Pascaline and I have to fight over this wine, given that we've both been selling it since the beginning of time um, or, you know, the last three years. So in a, in a way, yes, it's kind of it, there. There's it's, it's not a finite universe, but there are certain producers and they all kind of for whatever reason hit the radar at the same time and certain stores and certain restaurants and you know, it seems like it's everybody it's really not but everybody's suddenly like oh i want that or i want that and so it's you kind of got to pick and choose your battles have you seen wines in the five years that you've been there just escalate out of that zone where you used to love them and now you find it's more difficult to sell them because they're just more in demand but also more expensive um I would say everybody says this, but some of the Beaujolais producers, I mean, LaPierre has gone from send me all the half bottles, the strange, tall, dark half bottles that I want that now I can't get. I'm told what I can get, you know, and that's fine. There are other there's always somebody else out there. Um, Do you find that that's become the wine market, though, that you're always writing the next wave in? Yes. Yes. It's like there's always there's always 
the next thing what's the next thing who's the next producer trying to stay on top of it as prices go up as as things become less and less available but what i always what i always remind myself is that's a very very specific game and that's the that's something that exists as sort of the the top of the new york wine industry in our little rarefied world the vast majority of the wine drinking public they don't have any idea they just want something good to drink and so it's always like all right i can't sell this i can't get as much of that as i want let's just be happy that we can go out and find something else or offer something really great at a really good price um so i'm always kind of balancing between those those sort of two poles it's like i'm this cool wine store that always wants the cool cutting edge stuff but the reality is the bulk of the shop is just really interesting things that people are going to enjoy drinking at night so you worked on the corporate side and you saw how the allocation system can work did you find (laughs) that you needed to chart a retail store in a smaller footprint that wasn't going to try to play that game because it couldn't in terms of volume um Yes, yes. And I don't I don't really play the allocation game because uh, you know, I've I've been on the allocating side of the game and it's I, I just sort of take the viewpoint of like if if you're not going to give it to me, I'm going to go find something else. And because the shop is small, it really doesn't matter. And because we were coming um I wasn't coming with like this big existing customer base that already wanted these things because it is just people walking in off the street, they don't know that they're supposed to want that wine. So yeah, I don't, I haven't really had to, to, to play that game on the store side. Do you find that at retail things have moved to more of a French focus or a European focus than was true when you were working on the wine team at, at uh, Schifflin and Somerset? I, I think it's, um, the French focus again, I think that might be sort of a, New York wine trade thing. Uh-huh. Um, customers still are, Argentina is still very new. Uh, people still come in and ask about Malbec as if it's, the, well, not as if it's the first time they've heard about it. I think where, you know, kind of the cool kid wine scene is, yeah, it's very much French. Um, certain parts of Italy, yeah, it's it's what's, what's obscure. And France is always going to have new and exciting areas of obscurity for people to be in entranced by um, but for the broader wine drinking public no france is still france is still really confusing so you've talked a lot about kind of um how you bridge the gap between a cool kid or hip or reality of allocated wine market and the average guy walking mm-hmm. in or the average uh, lady walking in and asking for a bottle and, and where they're at um, what are some of the techniques that have been really important to you that you've noticed over time that work to do um, that? I I won't talk I won't talk down to people like I won't dumb wine down. I refuse to do it. Um, traveling like traveling around the country and looking at different wine shops, you'd walk into certain wine shops where the the merchandising was this is bold and this is crisp and this is whatever and that's like how they did the merchandising and those words resonate to people but i'm like that's only one piece of it so i organize by region because i feel that's the best most truthful way to do it when you're talking about how wine split themselves out when you get to sort of the upper levels of how are you thinking about wine but i will when people come in we have sort of a it's not it's not a script but we always ask them what they want to spend because i'm comfortable i can get you something good at whatever you want to spend as long as it's ten dollars um and then we just sort of throw out different descript 
receptors at them until we find something that sort of resonates. So, you know, we'll say, do you know what region you like or what grape you like or what style you like? And one of those three things, somebody will something will resonate. So they'll start to go, oh, well, I really like Burgundy or how about a Muscadet or I like Syrah. And then you kind of, you're like, okay, well, that's how they're talking about it. Let me go down that track. Um, So it's trying to figure out how are they talking about wine. And once you get a read on how they're comfortable about talking it, I'm still going to recommend the same things I would always recommend, but doing it in a way that they're going to understand. So if I think the best thing for their meal is a slightly oxidative Jara wine, and I've thrown those words out, and they are kind of interested in it, that's what they're going to get, even if they have no idea what that region is or what that grape is. But that's, you know, just kind of like throwing things at the wall until it sticks and see their eyes light up and be like, oh, okay, now we got it. So maybe we should try some wine and uh, we can put those words to practice. Sure. So, Christy, maybe uh, you could take some of those words that you're using for the customer and uh, show them uh, to our audience in a, in a glass. Uh, we have a Chateau Simon here uh, that you brought along with you and one of the whites. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about it and, and how you go about evaluating wine. Sure. Well, this is a, um, I brought along a bottle of Chateau Simon, the 2006 white. And this is a wine I love. I love their white, love their red, love their rosé. Um, they are from Palette is the region, and it's a little tiny appellation up in the hillsides above Provence, or it's it's a subregion of Provence, and it's um, limestone soil, and it's surrounded by pine trees, and I've never been there, but I desperately want to be. And they are, it's one of those interesting chateaus where they're, they're known, their rosé is sort of at the same level as their white, and they're red, so not, one of them doesn't sort of play at a, at a, wasn't, one doesn't stand above the others. And they're not inexpensive wines. They're probably, they're roughly about 50 to $60 on the shelf now. And I love this style of wine. The grape, it's primarily claret with a number of other grapes that are, it's a mishmash of a whole bunch of things. And they're white wines that can really age. And they're wines that, because they're a little not inexpensive, and because they have flavor characteristics that are a little bit difficult to describe. It's um, it's wine that I love that it's always kind of a challenge to describe it to the customer. But things that you sort of throw out, I'm going to try to take a sip with the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> this wine is, a lot of times I can sort of throw out flavor profiles like, ooh, it tastes like grapefruit or plums or strawberries or whatever. But this wine is not a fruity wine. So I find myself describing a lot of the texture that it's, that oh, it's, interesting. if, if words, fruit words and sort of color words fail me, texture is kind of where I go. And I love wines that are like this. So it's kind of a, it's one of those areas where it's something that I love, but they're a little bit more of a challenge to sell. So I kind of have to keep the store very focused. I could stock an entire shop with wines from whites from Provence and Languedoc Roussillon, but that would not be a wise business decision. And also, I guess we should say, this is a winery that doesn't have a lot of resonance at the customer level. Mm-mm. They don't. Most people aren't going to come in and say, oh, yeah, Chateau Simone, sell me a $60 bottle of white wine that's from 2006. But people, there are people who know it, and the people who know it are obsessed with it. So it's got sort of a little underground cult following, which is, I love wines like this, where there are people who know them and then people who try it love it but don't realize that oh it's actually this really cool thing that certain people are obsessed with they just think it's something delicious but like i would describe it as um 
very textural, a little bit honeyed, a little bit nutty. Words like words like honeyed, I always kind of struggle with throwing them out at the customers because they hear that and they think, oh, it's going to be sweet. And there's nothing sweet about this wine. So uh, I'll describe it as honeyed, nuttied, but not sweet, like just that flavor of honey, but not with the sweetness of honey. It's got a lot of texture, but yet it's still quite racy and great with really like simply prepared fish or with sort of a pasta dish, cream sauce, that kind of thing where the food's not going to beat it up. And some people just really love the sound of that. They think it sounds like something sort of sexy and exotic. And then the label is gorgeous. So if they're looking for something special, a cool gift for somebody who likes white wine, um, something a little different, this is kind of something that if I describe it in, in the right way and it kind of piques their interest, it's a it's it's an easy sell in that way, but there are very specific situations where a one like this will will work. Do you find that verbalizing the the proposed food pairing is is something that really makes a sale? It does. It really um any any way that I can describe a wine so people can have a sense of what it tastes like and how it's going to fit into their their table in their evening, that really, really helps. So if nutty and honeyed and that sort of thing doesn't really mean anything to them, if I talk about like, just imagine it with a really, with it, it cuts through sort of a creamy sauce, but it really balances it. And if you've got like a little bit of something savory, like a savory meat in there, this is going to sort of mingle with that really well. People are like, oh, that sounds really yummy. Um, so just kind of anything I can do to invoke some sort of picture in their mind about what the wine is going to taste like and how they're going to interact with it because I'm not at the table with them. That's, that's, a, that's a good thing. So a wine like this, you said, can age for quite a while. Mm -hmm. How do you go about describing that for customers if they're saying, if I have this tonight, sounds like I'm going to have it as what you described, honeyed. But if I have it in 10 years, how would you kind of make that leap for people? What's going to happen and how would you describe that process? Well, in this in this case, since it is a 2006, yes, it'll still, it'll still age. But this is one that I like to have on the shelf because it's already kind of aged a little bit. Mm -hmm. But if like I was selling the, the 2009 and the 2010, I would be saying tonight when you have it, it's going to be, it's going to be more about acidity. It's going to be more tightly wound. If you decant it or if you let it open up, you're going to get little notes of honey and things, but the minerality and the crispness is what's really going to come through. If you were to lay it down over time, those edges would sort of soften. Um, some of that, that sharp acidity would fall away and you would get more honey, more lushness. It would be less about fruit, more about minerality. Although in this case, it's not about, it's not about fruit to begin with. Well, thanks so much, Christy. I appreciate you spending the time with us and, and it was really delightful to hear about how you're going about what you're doing. Thank Great. you so much. Thanks for having me here. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that P O D.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.